It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 26 of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb, Chapter 26 Undern was in its June mood. Pinks frothed over the edges of the borders, and white bush roses flung their arms high over the porch. All was heavily fragrant, close, muffling the senses. The trees brooded, the house brooded, the hill hung above, deeply recollected. The bats went with a lagging flight. It was like one of those spellbound places built for an hour or an aeon or a moment on the borders of Elfdom, full of charms and old wizardry, ready to fall inwards at a word, but invincible to all but that word. The hot scent of the trees and the garden mingled with the smell of manure, pigsties, cooking pigwash, and Vesin's Tom Moody tobacco. It made Hazel feel faint, a strange sensation to her. Vesin's stood surveying them as he had done on the bleak night of Hazel's first coming. Where, he said at last, the countless fine lines that covered his upper lip from nostril to mouth deepening, where's the reverend? Receiving no reply but a scowl from his master, he led the horse away. Reddin, with a kind of gauche gentleness, said, I'll show you the house. They went through the echoing rooms and looked out of the low spider-hung casements where young ivy leaves, soft and vivid, had edged their way through the cracks. They stood under ceilings dark with the smoke of fires and lamps that had been lit unnumbered years ago for some old pathetic revelry. In cupboards left ajar by a hurried hand that had long been still, hung gowns with flower stains or wine stains on their faded folds. The doors creaked and sighed after them, the floors groaned, and all about the house, though the summer air was so light and low, there was a moaning of wind. It was as if all the storms that had blown round it, the terror that had been felt in it, the tears that had fallen in it had crept like forgotten spirits into its innermost recesses and now made complaint there for ever. A lonely listener on a stormy night might hear strange voices uplifted, the sobbing of children, songs of feasters, cries of labouring women, young men's voices shouting in triumph, the long intonations of prayer.
the death rattle. And as Reddin and Hazel, surely the most strangely met of all couples that had owned and been owned by this house, went through the darkening rooms, they were not, it seemed, alone. A sense of witnesses perturbed Hazel, a discomfort as from surveillance, a soft rumour as of a mute but moving multitude crept along the passages in their wake. "'Be there ghosts?' she whispered. "'I'd liefer sleep under the blue roof-tree. I feel like corn under a millstone in this dark place.' "'It's said to be haunted, but I don't believe it.' He glanced over his shoulder. "'Who by?' "'People that failed, weaklings, men that lost their money or their women, "'and wives and daughters of the family that died young. "'What for did they fail? "'Silly ideas, not knowing what they wanted. "'Dear now, Foxy and me, we dunna allers know what we want.' You want me. Maybe. If you don't, you must learn to. And if you don't know what you want, you'll come to smash. But when I do know, folk take it off me. A long, mournful cry came down the passages. Hazel screamed. Be that the lady is no gold comforts, she whispered. No, you silly girl, it's a barn owl. But she said to cry in the copy on Midsummer Night. Things crying out as have been a long while hurted, murmured Hazel. Tonight's Midsummer. Was she little like me? I don't know. Did Summit Strong catch a hold of her? A man did. He laughed. Did she go young? Yes, she died at nineteen. "'And so will it be with me,' she cried suddenly. "'So will it be with me, dark and strong, in the full of life.' She flung herself on a faded blue settee and wept. The impression of companionship, of whisperers breaking out, hands stretched forth, the steady magnetism of countless unseen eyes was so strong that Hazel could not bear it, and even Reddin was glad to follow her back to the inhabited part of the house. This is the bedroom, Reddin said, opening the door of a big room papered in faded grey and full of the smell of bygone days. The great four-poster, draped with a chintz of roses on a black ground, awed her. Reddin opened a chest and took out the green dress. He watched her with an air of proud proprietorship as she put it on. She went down the shallow stairs like a leaf loosened from the tree. Vesens, a beer bottle in either hand, was so aghast at the pale apparition that he nearly dropped them. I thought it was a ghost, he said, a comfortless ghost. So I be comfortless. Hazel said to Reddin when Vesens had retired. Her voice had a sound of tears in it, like a dark tide broken on rocks. And when I was comfortless at the mountain, Edward was used to read, Comfort ye my people, as nice as nice. Are you fonder of Marston than of me? I dunno. She sat down sadly in the home 
that was not home. She remembered the half-finished collar she was knitting for Foxy. Also a custom had grown up that she sang hymns in the evenings to Edward's accompaniment. She missed these things. She missed the irritations of that peaceful life, Mrs. Marston's way of clearing her throat softly and pertinaciously, Martha's habit of tidying all her little treasures into the kitchen grate, Edward's absurd determination that she should have clean nails, the ever-renewed argument, Foxy's a bad dog. She inna, she's a good fox. In my sight, she's a bad dog. Now she had floated free of all this. She was out of haven on the high seas. She felt very lonely, as the dead might feel, free of the shackles of life. It was certainly pleasant to wear the green dress, but she missed her little duties, clearing away the supper, Martha being gone, fetching the candles. Mrs. Marston always shook her head at the third, not from economy, but from vicarious philoprogenitiveness. Edward's reading of the book, Last Thing, had made her restless. She had thought it a bother. Now it seemed a privilege. To most girls, God's little mountain would have been purgatory. To her, it was wonderful. It was the first time she had shared in the peculiar beauty of home, the daily sacrament of love. Edward never forgot to kiss them both when he came in, brought them flowers, was always carpentering at surprises for them. These last never turned out very well. His technical skill was not keeping pace with his enthusiasm, but Hazel was not critical. She, in common with the other little creatures, sat down in his shadow as in a city of refuge. Mrs. Marston shared this feeling. She always fell asleep at once when Edward was at home in the evening, ceasing to invent alarms about black men creeping through the kitchen window, Foxy getting into the larder, and a great tempest from the Lord blowing them all to perdition because Lord's Day was not kept as it used to be. Into the parlour, at his own good time, Vesins brought the supper and dumped it on the large round table veneered like mahogany, heavily Victorian and ornamented with brass feet. There were bread and cheese, bacon and a good deal of beer. Hazel saw nothing amiss with it, for though she had begun to grow accustomed to respectable middle-class meals, life at the callow still seemed the homelier. Reddin looked up from cutting bacon to say with unwonted thoughtfulness, Like some tea and toast. He felt that toast was a triumph of imagination. He was rather dubious about asking Vesins to do it. So instead he repeated, You'll have some tea and toast. Vesins went into the kitchen and shut the door. They waited for some time, and Hazel, who, whatever her fate, her faults and sorrows, was always as hungry as Foxy, looked longingly at Reddin's cheese and beer. Physical exhaustion brought tears of appetite to her eyes. At last Reddin went to the kitchen door. "'Where's that tea?' he asked. "'Tay?' "'Yes, you fool. I know nothing about no tea.' "'I said you were to make some.' "'Not to me.' And toast. 
I've doubted the fire.' He had just done so. "'Look here, my man, there's a missus at Undern now. You please her or go. She tells me what she wants, I tell you. You do it.' "'I'll have no woman over me,' said Vesson sullenly. "'Never will I. Never a missus did I take. Not for all the pleasures of bed and board. No, ne'er a one I ever took. Maiden I am to my dying day.' The coupling of the ideas of Vesson's and maidenhood were so funny that Reddin burst out laughing and forgot his anger. "'Now make that tea, Vesson's. "'She unna be here long?' asked Vesson's craftily. "'Yes,' 